You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. We are now at the point in data privacy awareness where uh, a huge player like Apple is setting uh, a very rigid but necessary standard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben describes how the FBI has been found violating some privacy laws. I've got the story of Apple being sued over access to movies you buy online. And later in the show, my conversation with Erez Yalan. He's a senior director of security research at Checkmarks. We're going to be discussing Apple's app tracking transparency. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's dig into some stories here this week. Why don't you start things off for us? So it's been a long time since we've checked in with our friends at the Foreign Intelligence uh, Surveillance Court. <laughs> the FISA uh, folks, yeah. The FISA folks. Uh, <laughs> right. However, an article did come by in the Washington Post by Ellen Nakashima. Uh, mm. Federal court approved FBI's continued use of warrantless surveillance power despite repeated violations of privacy rules. Hmm. I'm going to try and start a little metaphor here based on being a parent. Uh <laughs> Let's say your kid is constantly asking for ice cream and you say you can only have ice cream if you do your chores and the kids routinely mess up the chores. They're, you know, pouring crumbs on the ground. Uh, They're (laughs) putting things in the wrong cabinet. They're not, you know, Mm -hmm. they said that they were going to clean the shower, but instead of pouring bleach, they poured in maple syrup. Leaving Lego all over the floor for you to step exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. Imagine yep. after all of that, you still decided to give them ice cream. That is what <laughs> routinely happens with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. So over the past several years, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court has done these annual reviews over Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act of 2008. Okay. That piece of legislation, which we've talked about, allows for our government to obtain the online communications of non-U.S. persons reasonably believed to be outside of the United States. And that information uh, is collected. It's collected warrantlessly and put into a large database that is searchable by the FBI. Now, there are all these restrictions on this data and how it can be used. One of the main restrictions that was instituted in 2018 
is that in order to search this database for garden variety criminal matters, you need to obtain a warrant. The FISA court is supposed to review the program annually, check these so-called minimization procedures, and then decide whether or not the program can proceed. In several years in a row now, we've gotten these FISA court opinions once they've been declassified, and it's usually a few months after they've been released, saying there are serious deficiencies in how this program is being implemented, but we're going to allow the program to continue regardless. I think this has happened in 2018, 2019, and now 2020. So what they discovered in their 2020 survey is that the FBI and its personnel conducted queries of data troves containing Americans' emails and other communications, seeking information without proper justification, which goes against not only Section 702 itself, but the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution, which applies to U.S. persons. Well, there's that. Right, there's that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Even though they are required to seek a warrant if they're searching this database for criminal prosecution purposes, apparently hundreds, if not thousands of times, there were searches into this database, which were done without obtaining a warrant. Hmm. They describe an instance where an FBI specialist conducting background investigations made 124 queries of raw Section 702 data using the names of individuals who had asked to take part in an FBI Citizens Academy program. To, to uh, uh, foster greater understanding of the Bureau's role in the community. Uh, but obviously he did this without any sort of legal authorization from an Article Three judge. Hmm. So this has become a very large problem. Congress has tried to address it by instituting greater requirements on Section 702 surveillance. One of those is, of course, this warrant requirement uh, under these limited circumstances. But all of these minimization measures are going to be useless if the FISA court allows this program to continue despite these violations. And so I think we're just kind of in this nonstop cycle where there's a scolding, there's a slap on the wrist, but the program is allowed to continue rather uh, in a way that's pretty much unabated. Is there any indication that the FBI are, are making good faith attempts to improve uh, how they approach this or are they putting any additional things in place? Let's see if this quote makes you feel better. And this is an exact quote. <laughs> okay. We are continuing to keep an eye on it, the FBI official said, to see if we need to have some system changes or not. Uh, that's so that's, <laughs> that's sort of where they are. Okay. I mean, wow. To, to the FBI's credit, they are following proper procedures in that they are routinely uh, applying to the FISA court for annual recertification of Section 702 surveillance. To me, the blame here lies with the FISA court itself, which has the authority to put a stop to these programs until they come into compliance with the statute. They've done that many times in the past with various surveillance programs saying you are not allowed to conduct the surveillance program, um, you know, unless there's some kind of emergency, unless you fix these documented problems. The fact hmm. that they're not doing it here says a couple of things to me. One, you know, law enforcement still maintains a lot of credibility in front of FISA court judges. These are not adversarial proceedings. Uh, mm -hmm. You're just hearing from the advocate on behalf of the FBI. You're not hearing from, in, in these types of cases at least, civil liberties advocates arguing why this, is, this type of collection is, is wrong or unconstitutional. Hmm. So there's that. And you always have to keep in mind that law enforcement and the intelligence community refer to Section 702 as the crown jewel of electronic surveillance. It is hmm. extremely effective. It helps us catch terrorists. And so, of course, the FISA court knows that they have to weigh these invasions of privacy on 
the fact that, you know, against the fact that this is a very successful national security surveillance program. And they seem to want to weigh in on the side of allowing the program to continue. My worry is FISA is going to start to lose its credibility as a mediating institution, not only with the public, but with the FBI itself. And they just might stop, you know, taking it seriously if despite these deficiencies in the program, despite the inconsistency in applying minimization procedures, they leave with a slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's my concern here. Is there anything that uh, Congress can do to help clamp down on this? They can, and they have, as I said in that 2018 law. One thing they could do would be to require warrants for every search of the Section 702 database. That would obviously help a lot, but it wouldn't solve these problems because even when warrants are required, we now see that the FBI is not uh, obtaining them in all circumstances. One of the reasons it's hard for Congress to act here is that these FISA court opinions are classified and redacted until they're released to the public, usually sometime in the future. So we're, we're very frequently reacting to something that's happened six or seven months in the past, and Congress has a relatively short attention span. And you know, many times the FBI will go to Congress or, or other intelligence agencies will go to Congress and say, this was the opinion FISA issued in November. We've already taken these remedial measures There's no need to restrict us further. Uh, And for the most part, you know, Congress is going to be pretty trusting of these institutions. But, you know, I think long term, you might have to reform some of the institutions themselves. Currently, the only adversarial proceedings that are allowed at the FISA court are when the court is considering a novel issue of law, something it has not considered in the past. That, as far as I'm concerned, does not apply to Section 702. It's not a novel law. There are no novel interpretations here. What Congress could do is require adversarial proceedings every single time one of these programs is up for annual renewal. And you would have to grant these advocates, and they'd generally be civil liberties attorneys, access to some of the classified information so that they could make an informed argument. That, to me, seems like a way you could correct for this problem. But again, you can do that. You can convince the FISA court as the FISA court has already been convinced that there are problems here, but the FISA court still has discretion as a court to continue to allow these programs to exist. I mean, there is not really any easy solution here. The chief justice of the United States Supreme Court is the one who appoints FISA court judges for seven-year terms. So maybe you could try and get in, uh, into his ear and have some judges who are a little bit more discerning, but good luck with that, right? <laughs> You know, I wonder, too, is there something that could be done at the agent level? I mean, I I know just anecdotally, when I've spoken to folks at the NSA, they've said that, you know, when if they inadvertently stray into some information that they that they shouldn't be looking at and they know they shouldn't be looking at, that it kind of triggers a paperwork avalanche. So there's an incentive to not do that because nobody wants to be hit with a paperwork avalanche, you know? So I wonder, is there something like that, that who knows, it may exist, but for the folks who are doing this, if an FBI agent does this without permission, can you dissuade them from doing it, uh, you know, by triggering some sort of paperwork avalanche or, or other method to make it, you know, not worth the effort? And I've sort of heard the same thing uh, when speaking to folks at the NSA, and I think it's less of a uh, problem with individual compliance because I think they do have a lot of really good institutional checks. Generally, it's not the case that one person can search this database 
and, you know, recommend criminal prosecution based on what they've seen without oversight from their superiors, from other government agencies, uh, et cetera. And, you know, when we have had compliance issues at the agent level, the people who are actually conducting the raw surveillance, I think the agencies have handled those appropriately. I think what Mm -hmm. we're dealing with here is more of a programmatic failure, which is that the entire culture of the agency uh, has failed to stop some of these abuses. And that starts with leadership. Uh, And the FISA court, while criticizing the agencies for failing to comply with the provisions of the law, has not stepped in and said, you know, use the power that they have to actually stop the program in its tracks. Right. Um, So until that culture changes at the top of the agency and in the FISA court itself, I think it is less of a problem of individual agents. Right. There's, there, are, there are no mandatory minimums at the FISA court level, right? Uh, <laughs> unfortunately not. Yeah. <laughs> that could be a reform proposal. Yeah. Mandatory there minimums, FISA court edition. <laughs> right. Right. All right. Well, uh, it's an interesting story and uh, certainly one worth keeping an eye on. A little frustrating, too, I, I, I must admit. Yeah, it's one of those things where I feel like we're going to see the story again uh, yep. a year from now. And, right, you know, it's like Groundhog Day. Yeah, it'll be an annual tradition of ours to talk about <laughs> the public scolding that the FBI has taken from FISA where they right. didn't actually do anything. Yeah. All right, well, we will have a link to that uh, Washington Post story in the show notes, of course. My story this week, I, I have to say that I have a bit of an ulterior motive uh, for including this story, and we'll get to that in a second, uh, because I have a personal bugaboo about something Ooh. that is related to this. But <laughs> in the meantime, this is a story from Ars Technica, and it is about Apple being sued for terminating an account of someone who was a, a user on their platform that had $25,000 worth of apps and videos. Now, Ben, you and I, well, mostly me, am old enough to remember going back to the the video store and, you know, renting videos. And sometimes if there was a movie that you really liked, you could buy that movie. You'd buy DVDs. People had large collections of DVDs. And, of course, the thing about that is if that DVD is sitting on your shelf, that DVD is sitting on your shelf forever. It's yours. You own it, right? Theoretically, well, these- Yes. I, I'm sure you. I'm sure I, you could tell me all the reasons why I don't actually own the movie that's sitting. We'll, on we'll my get show. to that, but we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll put that aside for a moment. Um, God, lawyers are so much fun. Oh, we're the um, worst. So, we're awful. <laughs> so these days, of course, in the era of streaming movies, most of the time we rent or buy from a streaming service, and Apple, of course, is one of the more popular providers of that. Uh, And in this particular case, there was someone who had over $25,000 worth of apps and movies and and so on and so forth uh, that this person had purchased, a gentleman named Matthew Price. And uh, for some reason, Apple terminated the account, and the reasoning is not uh, listed here. But uh, he's suing Apple and saying that you can't just cut off my access to these things I bought. I bought these movies. I bought these these, uh, this music, I bought these apps, and you can't just terminate my account and cut me off from the things that I purchased. And part of what's at issue here, and this is what we're going to get to with, uh, with the other thing that really bothers me, is the, the definition of the word buy. If you buy something, what does that mean? <laughs> does it really belong to you or not? Uh, so what do you make of all this, Ben? Un- unpack it for me. 
So yeah, what what's actually happening here is Mr. Price is suing Apple on a false advertising claim because they mm. are using that word buy. They're saying, press this button and you will buy this movie. Uh, but really, you're not actually buying it if Apple can come in at some point and say, you know, you're really only renting it. You're no longer a subscriber to to Apple. Therefore, you don't actually own it. And we're going to take it back. I, I think this is a, you know, on, on first blush, a pretty compelling claim. Uh, Apple is responding by saying that no person uh, would take that term literally. That, of course, in every circumstance. <laughs> right. And they always say that. But in every circumstance. Right. <laughs> You know, there there are going to be some exceptions where even though somebody bought something, Apple can still take it back. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to to come up with an analog from the non-digital world as I want to do. And I actually can sort of see what Apple is saying here. Yeah. So let's say I buy a bunch of movies from a movie store, a bunch of VHS. This is the 1980s. And I, for some reason, have gotten these movies on credit or something with the movie store. And I default on my payments either to the credit card or to the movie store. And I've defaulted for long enough that I've gotten a million different warnings Uh, I still haven't paid. Ultimately, the government does have a right to come and seize my assets, even though I own them, you know, and whether that's your tangible property like movies or even your real property, they can do that in certain circumstances, even though it's yours. And at some point you bought it. I mean, granted, the circumstances are different because (laughs) with, with an iTunes movie, you have paid for it. They've received the money. Right. But I guess what I'm trying to say is in in some circumstances, even when you've technically bought something, I can at least imagine a scenario in which the company that sold it to you still retains some right to it under some very limited circumstances. It's admittedly not a great metaphor. I I just hear – I think it's a – it's this whole thing with digital rights and also – encryption and access to content. The content providers sort of want to have their cake and eat it too, where if I buy a record album, right, and a CD, whatever, I I suppose you could claim that what I am buying is a license to use that content. Right. That I don't actually own the content because I'm not allowed to duplicate and resell it, right? right? It doesn't belong to me that way. And I think most people understand that and and think that's reasonable. But in this case, it seems to me like basically what they're doing is they're cutting you off from the authorization that you bought this 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 product. And it is the it's not having access to that authorization that makes the product useless. It's worthless if I can't hit the Apple servers, get the authorization key that tells my laptop, oh, yeah, you're authorized to play this movie. Enjoy. Right. Right? And so why can't I have some kind of permanent key that I can download that is transferable? I don't need to hit Apple's servers in order to to play the device. It Just like it would be in the old days of buying a DVD or a record album or a CD or, you know— Whatever, a gramophone, you know, who who knows, <laughs> right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, frankly, your reasoning seemed to be compelling enough to the U.S. District Court judge uh, who's hearing this case. So Apple moved yeah. to have this case dismissed, and the District Court judge said no, um, that they're at least going to move ahead and hear the merits of this case. 
So they are going to hear a claim of false advertising and unfair competition. Now, obviously, Apple might not want this bad publicity. They might settle this lawsuit and maybe put, you know, a tiny little teensy tiny warning at the end of the terms of conditions that says <laughs> under very limited circumstances, we reserve the right to cut off your access to this thing that you have bought. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, maybe they put buy in quotation marks. Um, right. Now Mr. On. Price it's, finds a, a brand new MacBook Pro on his front porch. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at least that would be the using the carrots approach and not the sticks right. approach, which <laughs> right. is good. Uh, so I, I mean, I'm sort of glad that this case has moved forward because it might force Apple, uh, to at least include, you know, not represent that when you're buying something, you're actually buying it so that you can own it forever. Um, and I think that could be kind of a groundbreaking concept, as you say, in the digital world. So I'm, I'm very, uh, curious to see how this case is adjudicated. Well, quickly, let me just give you the backstory here of why I was attracted to this story like a moth to a flame. And that is my own personal pet peeve about how um, mobile service providers have completely devalued the word unlimited, right? Right. Unlimited is a word that is not ambiguous. We all know what the word unlimited means. Yep. Uh, And so it seems to me that if a mobile carrier offers an unlimited data plan – we all know what that means. It means it's a data plan with no limits. And yep. yet, and yet, Ben, yep. <laughs> if you buy an unlimited data plan, there are all sorts of limits on it. Yep. And yep. what what drives me nuts is that why has the Federal Trade Commission not tamped down on this? Why have they not gone to the mobile carriers and said, Knock it off. Come on. Find a different word. This is bad faith advertising here. It's not unlimited. This Again, this is not an ambiguous word. All right. I'm yeah. getting off my soapbox. No, it, it's a good soapbox. I mean, I think what the companies would say is unlimited has, in the digital world, become a term of art, you know, <laughs> where it doesn't right. literally mean what it says. Unlimited right. means something slightly less than unlimited. I mean, I uh-huh. guess – we get to the point where <laughs> words start to lose all meaning and, and you know, we're kind yeah. of back to square one. But I think that's what they would argue, um, uh. that people, reasonable people would have an understanding that unlimited doesn't actually literally mean unlimited. Yeah, I don't. All right. Well, I, this is a hill I'm prepared to die on. So Die on that hill. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, let's move on. <laughs> so uh, it's time to move on to our listener on the line. We got a kind note from one of our listeners whose name is uh, Jonathan. He writes in and he says, "Uh, Greetings, Dave and Ben. I have a story and a question for the podcast. Several days ago, the giant parking payment company sent emails alerting users of a breach that compromised basic customer information. This breach apparently occurred in March. Park Mobile, which is the company, downplays the compromise, says only basic user information was accessed. This includes license plate numbers as well as email addresses, phone numbers, and vehicle nicknames if provided by the user. Uh, In a small percentage of cases, mailing addresses were also affected. Uh, This seems misleading at best. The loss of names, phone, license plates, etc. is arguably more serious than losing credit card information, which is easily replaced and covered by various protections for users. In contrast, the compromised data cannot be easily changed and puts customers at risk of being targets by criminals. 
Furthermore, the notice misleads customers as to the severity of the compromise when they should instead be warned of the potential danger of their personal information to be misused. How can companies be held to account for the loss of basic data when the harms that result can't be directly linked to the loss? Is there any hope on the horizon? What do you think, Ben? I'm never one to say that there's hope on the horizon, unfortunately. Uh, I've been burned too many times. Uh, but Jonathan asks a, a really good question here. So the short answer is that I think it's all going to come down to damages if there ever were a, a successful data breach lawsuit filed against this company. The actual standard for a data breach doesn't really change based on which data uh, has been compromised. So whether mm. it's credit card information or some of the so-called basic data we're talking about here, name, license plate, phone number, that doesn't per se change the cause of action. You know, it's still going to be the same lawsuit. If hmm. you can prove in court that, you know, and this hopefully will will answer Jonathan's inquiry here, if you can prove in court that the damages of losing this basic information has been significant, has caused significant financial hardship, then perhaps you'd be entitled to more damages than if you had lost your credit card. That credit card had been canceled within 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. um, and that credit card was, as he says, easily replaced. So I think the relief here comes during the damages phase in any given trial. But you can't can't go after them for potential theoretical hypothetical damages, right? It has to be real damages. Yeah. yeah, it has to be an actual case in controversy. Somebody has to have suffered some sort of actual injury, financial uh, or otherwise. I see. Um, you know, the problem is that most people don't go about suing the parking app on their phone for right. uh, a data breach. It's just not worth it for most individuals, which is, is a big problem. You generally have to go to the class action route which, you know, there are a lot of barriers to to having class action suits be heard. All data breach liability cases are still relatively new, and it's an area of the law that has yet to be fully developed. And this is an issue where state laws are very distinct. You have 50 different state regimes on how data breach liability works. So in that sense, it is a difficult question for an individual consumer. So is there hope on the horizon? Maybe. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe that's the best answer I can give um, right. in that if you were to somehow be successful with a lawsuit, no matter what data had been breached, if that data was valuable and and the loss of it caused you to suffer significant damages, um, then that would increase the liability on uh, behalf of the business that had been breached. Right. One of the take homes here is we're not at the point where uh, anyone assigns value to a particular type of data. In other words, you can't say, oh, my my email was compromised. That'll be 50 bucks, please. You know, it right. doesn't work that way. We yeah. are not at that point. No. Yeah. It has All right. to be individualized and, and dependent on the circumstances. I see. All right. Well, our thanks to our listener for sending in that good question. Uh, we would love to hear from you. We have a call-in number. It's 410-618-3720. Or you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. 
Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Erez Yalan. He's a senior director of research at Checkmarks. And our conversation uh, focused on Apple's app tracking transparency. Here's my conversation with Erez Yalan. It all started with Apple, like a lot of good uh, fairy tales. Apple's iOS 14 update promised to be one of the most comprehensive software updates to date. And the reason was a, a big change to its privacy policy which actually required developers to ask for permission before collecting anything regarding phone or tablet identification, which they call IDFA. This sounds something that is maybe small to some of the listeners, but actually this is one of the biggest steps or leaps towards privacy um, that we've seen um, lately. And the reason is because um, the feature will display notification on launch of new apps that will explain what the tracker will be used for and ask you to opt in to it instead of the usual opt out of it. Now, for a lot of apps, and certainly Facebook, I would put at the top of that list, I mean, this is a huge part of their of their business. Um, and so Facebook uh, has been pushing back on this, Yes. Yeah, uh, Facebook, and not only Facebook, I think Facebook was the most vocal, but others as well. well we all know the cliche, right? If, if you don't pay for something, then, then you are the, the merchandise. Mm. So it's the same here. We definitely see that the information of individuals, the information of groups, the data that is aggregated, and in general, the, the correlation that can be done between different pieces of information and analyzed to get us to specific um, understanding of human behavior in general and specific, it's worth a lot these days. And if you take it away from the big players, um, they're not going to be happy about that. And, and what puts Apple in the unique position to take this sort of stand? So that's a good question, and I, I guess you can see it uh, as a as a naive move towards better world and better privacy. I don't think we need to be so naive. Basically, there is some sort of uh, business uh, reasoning behind it. It's not all about the securing and the, let's call it the consumer's needs. So I think it may be part of the story of maybe improving the privacy stance of the users of, of Apple in general, but also it allows Apple to use their own mechanism instead of the, the general one, which they allow, and also they allow to opt out of, but it's a, it's a very similar mechanism that gives a competition to the others like Facebook and, uh, and other bigger names. Do you suppose this could be a competitive advantage for Apple to kind of position themselves as the, the privacy platform, if you will? I think it will be, but um, I'm thinking that this is not the story from, from my side anyway. So hmm. I, I do believe that they look like very progressive at the moment, and, but 
privacy enthusiasts such as myself, uh, we very much welcome this transparency. We don't really look at the, the reasoning too much, um, be it enforced or optional. Transparency should be a core value of every organization, I think, an individual. We are now at the point in data privacy awareness where uh, a huge player like Apple is setting a very rigid but necessary standard. And I think this is, as I said, this is by far the most effective way to increase transparency around data privacy in use. And any organization that wants to remain or use Apple's far-reaching application consortium uh, will automatically comply. And the, the others will, will make due. I mean, some people say that there will be no more place to, to people, uh, to, to companies that are using these mechanisms. Some say that they will develop some other way of um, getting paid either by, by freemium models or other mechanisms. Um, I'm pretty sure that they will manage, they will find a way either by having a less specialized way of putting advertising or something else. And, and Apple's new policy makes transparency and privacy a mainstream issue. We would not talk here if they would not do that. And I really hope that if other tech giants follow their lead, uh, we will quickly see it become uh, a standard practice in general. I saw a response from Facebook, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but they said something along the lines of saying that, you know, in response to this, they were going to have to extract some pain from Apple. And that made me wonder what sort of leverage Facebook has against Apple. I mean, I suppose the, you know, the nuclear option would be to pull their app, but <laughs> I, I can't imagine that happening. No, I can't imagine that happening as well. Um, I think that Facebook will uh, probably shoot their own foot by doing that. Um, eventually, everyone will have to get along because this is not something that is going to change, as it seems. It seems like Apple is very, very you know, dedicated to this move. And I think that at the moment, Facebook is trying to change things. But in general, the consumers are already talking about privacy and they're already talking about the entire idea of being followed so closely in their apps and things that they did not know before, and suddenly they have the knowledge. So I don't really think you can roll it back. You just need to adjust, as we do all the time with technology. Yeah, I wonder if, if this awareness, you know, as people are loading, uh, you know, the new version of iOS, and they see these warnings pop up, or these information screens pop up that say, you know, this is what this app is doing, are you okay with that? Having that put in front of them, Will that help with a push towards more regulation? Will people start calling out to their through their lawmakers and saying, you know, I, I was, really wasn't aware of the, the degree to which my data was being pulled and, you know, it's time to claw some of this back? So this is something that I personally hope so. I think that uh, uh, under the, the category of knowledge is power, specifically here, knowledge is what gives you the power to make an informed decision. Knowing exactly what data is being shared is, is a much more transparent process than having, you know, convoluted understanding that some of your personal information is something uh, sometimes being shared um, for some sort of vague purpose. Now it's really uh, uh, front and center. And many consumers claim that privacy is not a major concern because they feel uh, they have nothing to hide. Did you hear people say that before? I don't care, I have nothing to hide. My experience shows that when these same people see exactly what information about them is being kept and the conclusions the big software companies make out of this 
uh, snippets of data, they often change their stance. And I think that Apple's policy change could have an interesting awareness effect on consumers. How do you see this playing out? As, as Apple rolls this out, do you think they'll be successful with this and Facebook will, will merely have to, uh, and other companies will just have to go along with it? Yeah, I think they will be successful. I think that we already see many companies adopting it before the actual deadline of this update. Uh, we see a lot of applications that pop an explanation before the pop-up, the question of, of Apple. So they can kind of explain what they want to do and explain why they keep your uh, information. And I think this is, again, around awareness. I think that suddenly people know what to ask. For example, what kind of information are you collecting? How much time are you going to keep it? Um, <laughs> why? Because maybe I don't care now, but maybe I'm going to run for office in, in 20 years. Are you still going to hold this information? <laughs> Right. Um, so there are so many questions about that. And yeah, I think that the discussion is rolling at the moment. I think that companies understand that. And I think we're moving forward. And, and again, this is a clear sign that the value of data is continuing to grow. And as operating systems uh, like Apple and governments are, are beginning to pay more attention to how data is used, tech companies like Facebook, are, I think they are prepared to, to protect their most valuable assets but they will move forward with the trend because this is definitely a trend and I hope it's going to continue. You know, I, when I think about those sort of uh, preemptory messages that some of these app developers are, are popping up, it, I, I think of, you know, the, the teenager who uh, had a party in the house when the parents were away and, and <laughs> meets, the, meets the parents at the front door when they come home and says, you know, there's a perfectly good explanation for what you're about to see. Uh, <laughs> I just can't help thinking of it that way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's going to require some change, you know, from software vendors and legislators and consumers. But um, yeah, it's a... It's a new trend, it's a new era maybe of understanding the worth of the data, and I think that we're going to a better place regarding that specifically. All right, Ben, what do you think? Really interesting interview. Uh, It seems like what Apple is going for here might seem altruistic, saying that they're trying to protect the, the privacy of its users. And, you know, I I sort of think what they're doing is a good thing, despite the protestations of companies like Facebook saying that they're not able to make as much in in advertising uh, if the users are getting these types of warnings about app tracking. But obviously, as Erez said, there's a lot in it for Apple as well. If they're not really doing this for for altruistic reasons, they are trying to gain uh, a competitive advantage. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought it was just a, a, a very interesting conversation. Yeah, I think it's interesting, the whole notion of privacy as a competitive advantage. I, th- I think that's something we're, we're going to see more of. Yeah, I do too. And frankly, it's it's a good thing uh, because if the government is slow to act, then the market steps in. And right. you know, if people, if companies are competing over individuals using privacy as a selling point, that theoretically is going to be very useful for individuals. Because mm-hmm. companies will try and outdo one another in terms of privacy protections. Uh, right. And that could be more beneficial than government regulation, potentially. I sound like a libertarian now, don't I, Dave? <laughs> right. 
right, right, exactly. I would just say the new the new Apple iPhone 15 with built-in cloaking device, right? There you go. <laughs> right. All right. Well, our thanks to Arez Yelan from Checkmarks for joining us. Uh, we want to thank him for taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.